0: Welcome to the Rural Sales Show with my dad and host Sinjin Craner. Each week, my dad interviews people who you can learn from like sales and marketing experts, authors and performance coaches to help you and your rural sales team get to the next level. Oh, and make sure you subscribe or rate us on iTunes so you can buy me a motorbike. And now here's my dad. (laughs) This week, we are pretty, pretty lucky, boys and girls, to get Darren Woolley, who is the global CEO and founder of a company called Trinity P3 that started over in the ditch in Sydney, Australia, now with offices in Asia, UK, and America. Darren's on the show because, again, he brings a different perspective. He doesn't necessarily work so much with the primary sector, but is in the very privileged position of running a lot of pitches and liaising and coordinating managing and supporting agencies and marketing teams and marketing managers and directors. We talk about a heap of stuff here around how the marketing landscape is getting much more complicated and the need to accept that, how maybe chief marketing officers should now be called chief customer officers to get the customer uh, centricity. We talk about like uh, qualitative versus quantitative. In fact, we cover a whole ton of stuff. So again, try to pack in a whole ton here. Darren's a wealth of knowledge on this stuff. He's very, very well qualified with good authority. And in the show notes, we've got a ton of uh, resources that can help. So if you're a rural marketing manager or director or CMO, I'd encourage you to listen to this. You'll learn a lot. Okay, guys. So this week, we have a very special guest by the name of Darren Woolley. Darren is founder and global CEO of a very, very clever company called Trinity P3, who have offices all over the world in UK, US, uh, and Darren is uh, based in Sydney. I, full disclosure, uh, used to work with Darren many, many moons ago and was very fortunate and learned a lot of him. I would uh, describe him as the Mr. Wolf of marketing communication. He's been solving marketers and agency problems since the year 2000 and uh, has a very interesting background as an analytical scientist and he's a certified uh, practicing marketer. So he brings a heap of insights for us He's going to share a ton of information, I'm sure, absolutely confident of that. He's a regular chair, speaker, blogger, uh, podcaster, very easy, Google him. We will also include a number of links at the end of the show should you need his services. So, Darren, after that massive introduction, welcome.
1: Thanks, Engine. It's an uh, it's absolute pleasure to be on your podcast.
0: Good. No, it's nice to have you here, mate. Now, look, Darren, you're in this sort of privileged position where you're across you know you you' you and your team you're working globally and you're seeing a lot of trends and you're seeing what's working and what's not so maybe I could kick it off with that a really <laughs> probably unfair very expansive question straight away it's like what are you what's changing in marketing right now what are you seeing that is the biggest things that you think an audience like mine who are kind of rural marketers who are just trying to say well what's changing and and, and answer it as you wish of course which I know you will in your' very very well-sophisticated Darren way?
1: Well, look, the first thing is it is an absolute privileged position to be in because you know, Trinity P3 has been set up to solve the problems that marketers are facing. And so when our clients come to us, they have very specific problems. And I think there's a a level of trust where they're able to really share with us the things that are are keeping them up at night. I know that's a a, a cliched saying of, you know, what's keeping you up at night, but, you know, because they've come to us to solve a problem, we get to the bottom of what the issues are very quickly. And also we're not selling them anything other than the solution to their problem. So, you know, sometimes some of the things they say could be shocking in a way because you'd say well I can't believe they don't know that but but it's good that they're able to share that and they couldn't share that with their agencies even though many of them will say they have very close relationships with their agencies they wouldn't share that because it would reveal to the agency what they don't know and at the bottom of every client-agency relationship is a commercial arrangement which, you know, then puts you in a position of weakness or or vulnerability. And so, you know, that's why I always say to the team, you know, it is a really privileged position to be in. So I'm glad you, you used that word. Yeah. As far as the big issues go, you know, they, they've been happening for the last 10 years. Uh, the last time we had a global recession and i know some countries you know like australia managed to avoid the recession word because uh, you know they they were exporting so much iron ore and coal to the rest of the world but you know what actually happened then was that there was a quick tightening of the budget for most marketers and so what they found themselves having to do more with less or do the same with less that was the first thing and And uh, the second part is the number of channels, the number of customer touch points, whatever word you want to use, is absolutely uh, multiplied over that time. You know, we've got more social media platforms, there's more channels, there's more ways of spending your money. So they are trying to do more with less. And so the big question is, okay, so rather than trying to do more with less, Why don't I do more of the things that are working? And I think that's the big challenge. And we're seeing some huge uh, disruption and innovation around defining how do you measure performance in marketing? And we're seeing that with things like people talking about, well, it's now about attention. Other people are saying, well, it's actually about engagement. You know, there's lots of uh, conversations going on, but the big thing is really, being able to measure performance from a marketing perspective, where it really counts, and that's going to be sales, share of market, share of wallet, and that type of thing. is becoming the big hot points.
0: I'm sorry to jump in there. I'm so glad you've said that because, like, I think the two A words, and it's not agency, it's more around accountability and attribution are absolutely massive because, as you and I know, when things get tough, the first thing, and again, you'll have an opinion on this, the first thing that usually goes through a line is the marketing budget, because they're seen as a cost center, not a profit center. And it's pretty, as I always say, it's hard to defend the undefendable. So, you know, that attribution, that accountability, that performance in an attention deficit world that we most live in with this omni-channel stuff going on, it's, it's, it's pretty tough for marketing managers sometimes, isn't it, to get that attribution?
1: Yeah, and I think uh, the word attribution has actually been misused in the past or, or attribution models have been uh, implemented. Yeah, and, of course, we all know about last-click attribution, which for a long time was pushed by you know, the Googles of the world. Why? Because, of course, it benefited them. If everyone's measuring the last click to get to your website to buy something, then it has to be Google Search or, or AdWords or one of their services. But what we're seeing now is that the availability of data, the application of artificial intelligence and the use of whichever classical model of statistics you want to use is actually developing really impressive predictive models that allows marketers to start to be able to not worry about Attribution of what happened in the past, except for the sheer purpose of working out what they should be doing in the immediate future mm. to actually drive sales or drive the results the financial results that the their brands and their businesses are actually needing, and especially you know as we're facing you know headwinds economic headwinds i don't know why people are scared of recession, but you know it's economic headwinds unless they're in a position where they're going to be the line item that's going to get cut. And I think that's where marketers, smart marketers, are now starting to realise that, you know, they need to invest in systems that allow them to optimise that marketing investment. Because that's the first thing. I'd love marketers to be talking about marketing investment, not marketing budgets.
0: Yeah, I like that. I like that paradigm shift, um, Darren, because it should be seen as an investment and treated as such, the seriousness of it. So I'll put you on the spot here, but I know your big brain can handle this. Tell me—I mean, that sounds very cliche—but what are the vanity metrics you see in marketing versus the sanity metrics? You might have just touched on those, but if you could put them in two columns, what, how would you have a crack at that?
1: Look, the, the vanity metrics were the ones usually pushed by the people selling the media, right? So, we, yeah, as, as simple as impressions, uh, you know, the the reach yeah, you know, all of those things, likes, you know, all of those things are purely measuring supposedly how well the media's performing. And the like is, you know, and shares are supposed to be, you know, how engaging it is. But now there's much more sophisticated measures that go beyond that and start to look at, well, behavior. What is the person actually doing? You know, if you're running an ad and the, the the viewer is not actually doing anything, the first question is, are they a human being? Because we now know that a huge amount of digital traffic is actually bots.
0: Yeah, 100, you
1: know, you're 100%. not you are paying for people and actually getting bots in a lot of cases. And secondly, if they are doing something, are they doing something that's going to lead ultimately to a sale? You know, that's why it's interesting because... Um, all of that discussion, and I, I don't know if you uh, you saw it, um, uh, Byron Sharp recently had a go at uh, Ben and Field about their 60-40 mix of um, brand versus uh, 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 activation, I guess, yes. you know, and and said, you know, really, um, you know, why is it 60-40? Well, they didn't actually say 60-40. They do say that it depends. But the thing is that any of these things have to ultimately lead to a sale. You know, there are so many ways to build a brand. One of them is making people aware, and that's what media used to be all about, is buying awareness. Mm -hmm. And just because someone sees your ad doesn't mean that they actually take it in, so then it's engagement. And if they do take it in, ultimately, don't you want them to experience your brand and business? So wouldn't the best thing to be then give them something to do and that to do would be to buy the product or sign up or or then get to experience that? And that's that process, you know, the old funnel of moving them yeah. down the funnel to the point. And I think that's the danger is when people start talking about sales and marketing and sales being the lower part of the funnel and marketing at the top, it's it, actually today in a digital world can be seamless between the two and that mm. the two should be operating seamlessly. One doesn't lead the other, well, except in a, if you do it in a chronological timeline, marketing is certainly the starting point. Unless you've got a million salespeople running around the countryside, it's going to be much easier to reach people and get them aware as the starting point and move them down that funnel to actually do something
0: yeah, I mean, it's funny because I was—I just, while I was listening to you, I was reaching out, trying to look for my um, Byron Sharp book, you know, and you talked around salience here because he he kind of explained a few myths on that, and he had a book called How Brands Grow and What Marketers Don't Know by Byron Sharp. You, I think because you're a well-read, uh, learned bloke as well. What were your views on Byron's views? Because he talks a lot around salience and, and some of the things you've actually just spoken about.
1: Well, yeah, he talks about mental availability and yes. physical availability. Which is, yeah mental availability, I absolutely agree with. You know, just constantly being the brand that people reach for, except then there's physical availability, which is distribution. You know, if you make it hard to then buy your product, then it's going to work against it. So, of course, you have to have both working hand in hand. The interesting part is, though, that he also thinks that you should go for mass market, that he is anti-targeting because he believes that, you know, everyone's a potential uh, shopper. And I think that that applies to mass-market goods, you know. A lot of the brands that he talks about are consumer packaged goods, you know, like Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, mm-hmm. for me, I always remember being told that the target audience for Coca-Cola is any arsehole with a mouth, <laughs> you know. Or a thirst, um, and and so you know, if someone starts telling me they're segmenting that Coke brand, you could segment it down to mums with thirsty kids and sell. But then you sell it to them through supermarkets on special.
0: Well, Warren, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger would be very happy about your theory there, Darren, because obviously they're well they're well invested
1: in Coke, aren't they? Yes, exactly taken a strong position there. But, yeah, ultimately the, the whole uh, business strategy is making Coca-Cola more, more um, uh, popular than water was yeah. the business strategy, wasn't it? Yeah, 100%.
0: So, Darren, I'm going to put you on the spot here, we bet, and again, because I know you can handle it. Tell me different A word this time, like attributes. What, what do you see across your many, many years and decades of experience? What constitutes a great marketing manager in your eyes with your experience what is it that makes them special what makes it different or valuable and unique uh you know what i'm looking for is kind of like your must-have list for the attributes of the ideal marketing manager what would they be
1: Yeah, look, it's interesting, Sinjin, because people talk about needing deep experience in one of these verticals, like digital and that type of thing. I actually think that, uh, and let's not talk about managers per se, but marketing leaders play a really important role in an organisation, whether they're a a marketing director, a brand manager, whoever's leading the marketing efforts Mm. should be the ones that bring a uh, customer perspective to the board table or to the business table. Whenever you're sitting down and talking about the business, marketing should be the one that is using research um, and, and customer understanding to actually constantly bring that perspective. The extra dimension is they need to then be able to galvanise and, and enthuse the team for the customer. You know, I love the fact that some big companies changed it from chief marketing officer to chief customer officer, Mm. because I think brands especially don't just get built by what you tell them. It gets built by what people experience of the brand. You know, you could spend millions of dollars on ad campaigns and digital advertising And all you need is one bad customer experience along that journey, and especially towards the end of that journey, and you'll fail. So whoever's in charge of this needs to be overseeing or at least having input into all of those. And then the final part is increasingly they need to be able to speak the language of business. Most marketers find themselves very good speaking marketing language. You know, they can talk to their agencies and they can talk to, you know, the researchers and that type of thing. But they also need to be able to talk to the CFO, the CEO, the uh, chief of HR, the CIO, you know, all of these people. They need to be able to, in that process, be able to talk to them and explain to them how marketing and how that customer experience is going to grow the business and grow it from a financial perspective, a share of market, whatever those uh, metrics are. So but any marketer that's sitting there talking about how many likes they got, and I don't think that happens anymore, but, you know, if they're talking about, oh, we reached a thousand, billion, gillion, gazillion, trillion, billion customers. That's a lot. That's a lot of people. Yeah. It's like, okay, so? Yeah, so what? Yeah. So, so what?
0: So, Darren, on that, that's awesome. It's like, for me, as I was thinking, listening to you there is like, so do you think that's why most marketers don't make C-suite, don't make that executive team, that board table? I know that's probably a huge generalisation, might be doing some of them, not all of them a disservice, but do you think that's why marketers are often underrepresented at C-suite or at that board governance level? What are your thoughts?
1: Well, the marketers that do get promoted up to running companies as CEOs are the ones that do... Speak those lang that language, you know. The, so uh, I'm not sure it's the reason why they don't get it, but certainly the ones that do get promoted out of being a marketer into running a business are usually the ones that understand business as well, mm-hmm. yeah, and can talk about it. Because you know you've got to remember that uh, marketing. I know there was a, a quote about you know it, every uh, marketing and innovation. Are the two main drivers of value in the business. Everything else is a cost.
0: Drucker, Drucker,
1: Drucker. Drucker, that's right. <clears throat> but except that that assumes that marketing is traditional, you know, or classical marketing, which is whether the four Ps or the seven Ps of uh, of yeah you know, having say over product, uh, distribution, pricing, and and the rest. A lot of marketers find themselves having the role or title of head of marketing, but they're really only got a promotions role. They really only have one of those four levers. And so it's very hard then to make any substantial business transformation when you have a lever that you either push forward to turn on or pull back because you're cutting costs. You know, marketing has to be seen as more than just being the promotions department. And those marketers that can, first of all, make that transition from being the promotions to proper marketing – And then be able to explain to the rest of the organisation sitting around the C-suite table how they're actually driving value and driving profit, then they can make that step up to control, you know, be head of that table.
0: Yeah, and I mean, on that is, which links again is that whole sort of, I love that shift from CMO to CCO, you know, customer marketing officer to customer, uh, chief customer officer and that customer centricity that we often hear about this might sound a bit of a tangent Darren, but like what's your views on qualitative versus quantitative like in in a research sense do you have a view on school of thought on evil or how they work together what's your view on it because i have a view but i'd be interested in yours
1: well, look, a lot of people have said, you know, in the last, again, last decade that, you know, you don't need research anymore because you've got so much data. But most of the data available to us, especially from the internet, is behavioural data. It's showing you what people do. You still need research to help you discover why they're doing it. And I think, you know, the traditional, if you, if you mean qualitative in groups, I'm not sure that's anything other than what it's always been, which is a very basic litmus test of they like it or they don't mm-hmm. and shouldn't have a lot of uh, uh, emphasis placed on the outcome. But, you know, I think you do still need research. To mm. you can get your insight or your observation from behavioral data or or qual- quantitative data, but you still need the qualitative to explore and and dive down into what are the underlying drivers. Yeah. Because otherwise you default to using your gut instinct, which can be incredibly flawed because in many cases you're not actually the audience. Well, your intern- so what you're what you do.
0: Yeah, absolutely that. Sorry, I mean, on that, you're flawed because I was just going to jump in and say that we all project our own biases, don't we? And often as marketers, we think that we are the market when we're not because we're not. Simply, we're not. Exactly.
1: You know, I mean, it's so important to be able to uh, go out and actually hear the voice of the consumer or the customer and yeah. get their perspective. And that's the other thing is do research that doesn't just tell you what you want to hear but hopefully tells you the things that you should be hearing Um, because I've seen on a number of occasions research that from a science point of view, I just sit there and go, why did they even bother? (laughs) If someone could uh, make sure that every marketer actually understands statistical analysis... Oh yeah. That would be really helpful. And their agencies. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I had a client that was talking around sample size. And I said, well, you actually have to look at statistical probability, but hey, this is far too deep for, for listeners at this time of day um, for us to get into that. That might be a chat for another day. And you you're you'd wipe the floor with me on that one anyway, Dan. But look, picking up on that sort of qual more one-on-one, deep immersion, insight-informing kind of strategy, wh- why why get guests on the show like you is because you offer a totally different perspective for the rural market, the primary sector. I know you've been very kind letting me come on your podcast. You've talked about your experience with Frontier and, and such, but maybe not so much in the rural market because I think our listeners want to learn from outside their sector, you know, what we call funnel vision, not tunnel vision. So getting outside ourselves, getting over ourselves and looking outside in, who's who's using that insight and that qual work really well? What are the campaigns you're seeing, down, whether it's across the ditch or globally, that you think are doing, doing a good job?
1: Look, uh, it's interesting because increasingly you're not seeing the campaigns. No, mm. you know, that the, the people that are using data really well and are using it to engage you as a customer are not doing it publicly. Yeah, you know, they're the not months. necessarily doing the big campaigns. You know? And I'd have to say from personal experience, you know, some of the uh, supermarkets, for instance, they know every single uh, item I purchase every time I swipe my loyalty card. Yeah. And then they start customising the, the specials of the week to suit my purchase behaviour. So they start to know what it is. Now, you know, Amazon started doing that years ago. Well, wait till, they, they, wait
0: till they hook up your fridge, Darren,
1: with a smart <laughs> fridge. But, yeah, and, and so it's much more about, the really smart ones are using customer data to actually improve the customer experience by being able to engage you around the things you're interested in.
0: And that's you a know. good thing, right? That's a good thing. We don't mind the data, and that whole oxymoron of big data. But if the data actually allows us to give us more valuable offers and experiences, I personally, I'm all for that.
1: And that's right. You know, um, I think where it went wrong is, you know, I. You start getting into your, your your later decades, and suddenly you're being offered, uh, you know, Viagra and other things <laughs> that, that are not even appropriate. But it's just because they're using very basic data; they're using your birth date and going, "Well, everyone over a certain age who's male would need this product." That's not actually in, enriching the customer experience. That's no,
0: hundred percent. I, yeah. I think I saw some from Disney that basically sponsors or clicks on. People, when they're looking for babies' names and they find out when you're doing it, and then they serve you up Toy Story and um, cars, and they know every year what time your little ones are coming up to it. It's, it's evil, but it's also genius at the same time.
1: And that's the point is that you know, we wouldn't need GDPR regulations in the EU if uh, marketers and companies used the data in a respectful way yeah you know, I think if you said to consumers, we want to collect this data, but we want to do it in a way that actually improves your experience of our business that makes your life easier. Most people would hesitantly say, all right, I'll give you a go, but if you screw it up, I'm you know really up. going to punish you. yeah right? And mm-hmm. I think that's the thing is, you know, the idea of permission marketing, which uh, I think it was Seth Godin in yeah. 1999 wrote that book, Permission Marketing. But yeah, uh, that's what it should have been. What it ended up being is basically treating digital channels for mass marketing, you know, and it's very still very hard to personalize offerings to people in the millions. You no, know. totally.
0: Yeah, it's, so, it's incredibly hard because there's so much data to chunk through. But like you say, people who willingly, as you say, give them a go, if they were serving the best interest of the customer rather than the best interest of themselves.
1: Exactly. So I think you know, when people ask me who's doing great, uh, great campaigns or great marketing, the fact is that it's largely hidden. I think that's also why you know, the advertising industry loves their awards. Yeah. and awards are still given for things and you know that are, are incredibly creative but a lot of the time you go i never saw that i never saw that yeah now you either didn't see it because it never really ran it was just done to win an award okay. or it was so well targeted that you wouldn't see it because you're not the target audience yeah and to me that's clever you know yeah. if you don't want to waste your marketing budget deliver the message to the audience at a time and place where they're most likely to act on it.
0: Yeah, and I think the other thing there is having come from agency world, and I've I've worked in that business for sort of half my life, is sometimes some agencies are very focused on the reward, which is getting the result for the customer, and some agencies are a little more self-serving where they're focusing on the award for themselves. And it's back to that kind of sanity versus vanity kind of something that's shiny and creative that was probably a concept. I mean, what's your views on that On the whole agency's, um, you know, there's some awards that are worth the weight in gold and some that aren't. What, what, what are your views on that?
1: Well, we've got a uh, client who recently appointed their agency and they said to us, uh, you know, we need to have a performance-based fee model. And I said to them, well, what, what's the one you've got? And that had at least a dozen different metrics all around, you know, market share and and brand awareness and all that sort of thing. And uh, I said, how's that worked for you? And they go, oh, we gave up. It was too hard to actually calculate. And I said, well, what's important to you? And they said, well, being effective and pushing the boundaries creatively. Now, this is the marketers. Yeah. So what we did was I got them to write down which awards for effectiveness and creativity they valued. And we've put in place a scheme that actually pays the agencies for winning those awards. Wow. Now, that's a very binary, you know, here are the things we value if you do it. But it's done in a way that's very targeted. Mm-hmm. And what it does is it gets the marketers and the agencies sitting there going, will this drive the sort of results that we need to get an FI award? And are we pushing the boundaries to get the type of cut through? Now mm-hmm. I think that's a really good use of that. Would I recommend it for all advertisers? Of course not. You have to incentivize your agencies to achieve the things that you want to achieve, but I think the more simplistic or the the you know, making them overly complicated means that you'll never achieve them. Create kind of Yeah, create things that really focus people on getting the outcome. It, I've never, we run a lot of pitches. We help a lot of people choose agencies. Agencies always put a list somewhere in the presentation of all the creative awards and EFI awards and all that sort of thing that they've won. Very few clients are actually persuaded by awards per se. Interesting. When they've got an agency and the agency wins, they're very happy for the agency. They're happy because they want their agency to get recognition for work well done.
0: And they're backing a winner and it reflects well on them because you're judged by the company you keep, right?
1: Yeah, but, but largely awards are there for the agencies mm. so they can attract good talent. Mm. And that's really what it's about. You know, most agency awards are all about uh, getting the recognition so that the good talent wants to come and work there and, of course, win more awards
0: i I got a really interesting question for you, Darren, and your answer as professionally and diplomatic as you can. My, I have a view, and it's probably a very naive, unsophisticated one. I think some, but not all, some of the best talent works for itself these days. And maybe you've got a view because, again, you're in that privileged position where you're seeing a really good creative team or strategic planners, I don't know if it's generally suits because the, the strategic planners and the creatives are really dialed in on that specific kind of skill set that is around growth and customer centricity and all the things we spoke about. Are you seeing, you know, it, it's that whole idea of the shop and the, the future of the ad agency model and the agency model. Like sometimes I feel, and it's a long question, is talent is sometimes just fed up with the sort of boundaries of a traditional agency and then go and create their own agency and they say, oh, we're not going to be like an agency and then they become an agency. What What are you seeing?
1: That, that's a classic uh, paradigm is uh, at some point in someone's career because the advertising industry, especially the agencies, don't have a business model that supports someone throughout their career. You know, there comes a time and someone said it's around 40, 45 where suddenly there's no longer a place for you in the agency. Now, there are exceptions to that because if you think about an agency structured in talent as a pyramid, there's a lot less people at the top than there are at the bottom. So at some point, you're going to get to, career-wise, you're going to find that there's no place for you in in the big agencies or the traditional agencies. And so they'll either go out and start their own agency And they'll go out and start their own agency. And, again, it's usually driven by creative and strategic people, but the smart ones will take a good account management person because you need someone to hold it all together. Yes. Um, And they'll set up their own agency, and they'll carry all the things that they hated about the big agency. And that's why they say, we're not going to be like a big agency. (laughs) But if they're successful, they grow, and they'll often end up defaulting to what the only thing they know, which is the way big agencies run. And so as they're successful and grow, they'll just become another big agency.
0: It's almost like Darwin evolutionary psychology, isn't it? Sort of like, you know, we're going to metamorphosize into something that is not an agency, and then they become an agency again. I mean, for me, I you know, we have more of a sort of creative community model on the marketing side of the business. And we we find, and, and maybe we're just a little bit rare or unique or gifted in terms, not us, but like very blessed by, we think some of the best talent doesn't work inside agencies these days. They work for themselves. And I'm not talking about Fiverr Upwork and that kind of stuff, but I'm talking about really good talent that's out there on their own who've really just had enough of that agency model and said, actually, I want to go and cut my own teeth and and they're they they're not they're not too bothered around scale. They just want to do really bloody good work with good people with good briefs. Um I mean that's maybe not for comment but more just sort of a, a personal view. But I mean on on the other side of it down, what where do you think I know I, I've asked you this question. We we caught up when I was in Sydney last. Where do you think the model of the agency is going? Again, you are very well qualified sitting there. Where's where's it going? Well look um don't, don't worry about that. they would probably come to get you.
1: <laughs> the um, The agency model is under pressure in a number of areas, and it's also never going to be one size fits all or one model fits all. There will always be large global advertisers that will buy the convenience of having a global network that largely mirrors their structure, and that makes it easier for them there'll be increasingly marketers, especially those that are using customer data and wanting to do large volume acquisition in real time that will increasingly bring more and more of those agency services in-house. Now, whether they actually build them in-house or they just hire, um, you know, hire someone to provide those services but physically provide them in-house. There are clients that like to have Sort of the best of breed. So they'll identify all the, the capabilities they want and they'll go off and they will choose the best agency for each of those, only the, to then discover you spend a lot of time corralling them. You know, it's a bit like herding cats. Mm. So, you know, and, and they'll get frustrated with that. So mm-hmm. then they'll default back to a model of putting it all with one big agency, but that comes with compromise because they'll be good at some things and not at others. So, yeah, you know, all of those models exist, and there's enough advertisers to actually support all of them. I think the biggest trends we've seen is in housing. Mm. Except, I think that's going to you know the idea that it's binary is wrong. It's neither in, it's not in house or outsourced. There is a hybrid of which there are a million different variations. We're seeing the big holding companies are really struggling in some ways to maintain growth and growth that the shareholders expect, but they're still hanging in there. You know, there is always that uh, prediction that eventually the wheels will fall off and they'll fragment. I'm not sure how long that'll take. You know, it, it is a model that was really born out of the late 90s, it largely, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure for all of the hard work, but you are seeing a rise of smaller holding companies actually coming through and building an alternative to that. You know, the one-stop shop, but with flexibility. Mm-hmm. And even some of the big ones, you know, we've seen uh, Publicis and, and WPP, uh, especially and and Dentsu now cre- trying to create a you know a model that's much more flexible for their clients. So if if you're asking me which way is agencies going, agencies are going lots of different ways because mm-hmm. they're trying to find the model that's going to suit their clients. And the fact of the matter is, clients have lots of different needs, and so it's very hard to find the one model that suits all. But it is absolutely possible for any marketer to find the model that suits them because it's all out there in the marketplace. Yeah, well you know, said. The, well the, said. The, market, the model that you're talking about, you know, of of having individuals and the, and the flexibility, that would drive some marketers crazy.
0: Mm, absolutely. Because
1: they want consistency. They want the same people all the time. They want structure. They want
0: know, the standing want army, them. as we call it. They want the standing army.
1: Absolutely. But, you know, then there are others and especially, you know, we've seen it with tech companies, start. you know, the startups who want that flexibility because they're used to working in an uncertain environment, you know, where you just pull people in and they do almost the work.
0: Like the, almost like the uh, Hollywood um, model, you know, Hollywood model, yeah. where they just bring the freelancers, assemble it, construct it and then de- deconstruct it. Darren, I'm conscious of time because you've been very, very good just all here. What we covered here is there's no easy answer, is there? It's very complicated. There's a lot of different variables going on. So like, I always ask all my guests this one question that was taught to me by someone far, far smarter than me, which wouldn't be hard, is if you had advice for marketers listening to this podcast and knowing that it's getting so complicated and so many different things and dependencies going on, what would be your best advice
1: to them and why? Okay. So it's not complicated. It's complex, first of all. And live with the fact that it's complex. There are no simple solutions to this. So if you embrace complexity first, the, the solution is, therefore, what I need to do is to develop a strategy that allows me to test the market and find out what's working and what isn't. And when something's working, do more of that. And when it's not working, do less of it. But my single piece of advice that I love to give any marketer that asks is that strategy exists for one reason and one reason only. And it's not to tell you what to do, but what not to do. Because there are thousands and thousands of options in a complex system. You could do literally millions of things in a complex system, except that you've got limited resources, either human or financial or both. And so a really good strategy will tell you don't do A, B, C, D and E, but do G and X and Y and see the results you get. Now, if you've got the data and you've got the analytics, you'll be able to tell straight away what's working and what isn't. And stop doing things that don't work and invest the money into things that do work. But stop trying to do everything with the limited resources you have, because what ends up happening is that there are so many things going on that you can't tell if any of them are working. And that's, that's the worst place you can be, because then you're not accountable. Yeah, you know, I fear of missing out is a big part of this, you know. Oh, my, such and such is on TikTok. We better run over and start doing TikTok. No. What does the strategy tell you? Does it tell you to do it or not do it? I'll tell it's you so, what, most of the time I'd say don't do it.
0: It's such good advice. The reason is I was, I was very lucky. I was talking at a conference a couple of weeks ago with a lot of um, tractor and machinery dealerships, as I would in my life, and there's a marketing manager that called out, and I don't know if he's put up for the question by the GM or not, and I try to answer it very poorly like Jeff Bezos did when that interviewer said to him, what's going to change in marketing? And I said, well, actually the question should be what's not going to change in marketing. Stop." So I think what you're saying, and please challenge me if not, Darren, is stop chasing the shiny shit and focus on what your strategy defines, what you should be doing and what you shouldn't be doing, and then double down on what is working and then remove your sunk fallacy, your overinvestment in the things that you that aren't working. Have I got that right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, like invest in the things that work. And if they stop working, stop doing them. Yeah. You know, if, if there's no point in marketing trying to be everything to everyone, your yeah. strategy will tell you where you start. And if that's working for you, do more of it, but don't just keep adding to it. It should be a subtractive process, not an additive process. The additive process is adding customers and profit but not adding channels, agencies, you know, and the like to what you're already doing.
0: If anyone's listening to that, that was very, very good advice there. You said it is more a subtractive process, not an additive process, correct?
1: Yeah, that's it. Yeah,
0: 100%. Great words. Darren, super appreciate you making time for us as always. We'll catch up with you in Sydney if you're in town when I am and we'll have a coffee or a beer um, last thing is, where can people that maybe are rural marketers who want to get more performance, uh, looking for agencies, where where can they find out? Where can they where can they go to find out more about you guys and what you do?
1: So the website's Trinity P Three, letter P, number three dot com, or I'm on uh, LinkedIn as Darren Woolley. Uh, just look me up and connect with me through LinkedIn, or come to the website. You'll find a lot of information there that uh, will really help you shape the way you think about marketing investment.
0: Yeah, thank you, Darren. And I would just heed that that Darren and his team are massive content creators. There's a wealth of knowledge on that site. I follow it. I get Darren's emails. So I very much encourage you guys to go up and sign up there. So Darren, I'm super appreciative. Thank you so much for your time. I think one of your, your big takeouts there is embracing complexity you know, not being King Canute, right? It is getting more complicated, but don't accept that rather than fight it, correct?
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Garen, always a pleasure. Love talking to you, my friend. And uh, thank you again.
1: Thanks, Sinjin. It's been great.